Thank you again for being here. Uh, we appreciate your support very much. I want to talk to you about something I think is really fundamentally important that's going on in the United States to get today, a fight that uh, we at Cato are very involved in. I think there's a philosophic fight for the future of our country going on. I think it's the most significant philosophic battle in our lifetimes. Um, it's really an old fight. It goes back to the early 1900s. Uh, with the rise of the so-called progressive movement under Theodore Roosevelt and ultimately Franklin Roosevelt. But it's been re-energized specifically by the Obama administration and, and it's very visible in public policy today. And how this fight comes out, who wins this battle, it will have a profound impact on the quality of you, your lives and particularly your children and grandchildren's lives. Um, on one side are what I would call the, the classical liberals and the libertarians. The advocates of liberty, we believe the advocates of the basic ideas that made America great in the first place. I'll talk about our side in a minute. On the other side of the status, and I use the term status in a broad context because there's status on both the left and the right. The left-wing status are very visible today, but when the right gets its turn, it often moves to statism. And statists believe that fundamentally human beings are flawed. And we need somebody that's wiser, what uh, Plato called a philosopher king, to guide our actions and make sure that we all act in the common good. And because otherwise, we're just very selfish and very self-destructive. So we need these wise men, these elitists, uh, to, to, to do the good things for all of us, the common good. And that's really the role of government. Government can fundamentally solve all the world's problems. Um, Underlying this belief system are kind of three philosophic ideas. Altruism, collectivism, and egalitarianism. Altruism is not benevolence. Benevolence is a good thing. Altruism is otherism. It says everybody else is important but you. Everybody else is important but you. Now think about that idea. If you really apply it consistently, they're only yous here, right? So nobody is important. If every individual isn't important, then no individuals are important. And the only thing that matters then is the group, the collective. And of course everybody deserves the right to have a nice house. Provided by who? Everybody has a right to free medical care. Provided by who? My right to free medical care is my right to force a doctor to provide that care or to force somebody else to pay that doctor which is exactly the opposite of the American concept of rights. In the American concept of rights, you have the right to what you produce, what you create. You don't have the right to what somebody else produces and what somebody else creates. And that <clears throat> collective idea is around the whole concept of the so-called common good. Now here's the problem with the common good. It's an oxymoron. The, the, the list of things that are equally good for everybody is very short. It may be zero. <laughs> Most things are good for me, bad for you, good for you, bad for me. Uh, certainly very, very few things are equally good for everybody. Some things may be better for some people and good for others but not as good. So there is no common good. And since that's the standard but there isn't one, what's the practical reality that happens? It then becomes, since it can't be the good of the individual, it becomes the good of the group. The good of the group. What's good for my sex? What's good for my race? What's good for unions? What's good for business? 
and you have group warfare going on in this collective, which is exactly how our government's functioning today, right? Group warfare going on, collective good. Now here's an interesting thing, underlying <coughs> these collectivist ideas and this common good ideas is a very strong sense of what justice looks like. And if you really talk to the progressives, they're in the justice business. Their view of justice is probably radically different than yours and certainly radically different than mine. They're egalitarians. Now, it's interesting to note the United States in many ways is an egalitarian society, right? Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. That is an egalitarian idea, right? But it was an idea about equal rights before the law. Just because you were the son of the, the duke didn't give you any special rights. It was about equal rights before the law. The progressive definition of egalitarianism is very radically different from that. What they are looking for is equal outcomes. And while it's true that everybody ought to be equal before the law, and it's true that human beings deserve dignity and respect because they're human beings, it is not true that everybody's equal. In fact, I have never met two equal people. Every person in this room is a unique, special individual. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses, uh, different ambitions, different abilities, and that's the good news. We're all unique, special individuals. We're not equal. We're different. At the extreme, Thomas Edison and the Boston Strangler are not equal. People are not equal. The only way to get equal outcomes from unequal people is to use force, the power of government, to take what someone else has earned and give it to somebody that has not earned it. And that is how egalitarianism is practically achieved. Um, I'll tell you how destructive egalitarianism is. I'll use an example, tell you a story. The story tell you a little bit about my age and where I went to college. Um, one of my heroes is Michael Jordan. I thought Michael Jordan was not only a great basketball player, I thought he was a real inspiration for poor kids. This will surprise you, but I am not as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. There's a <laughs> serious differential in performance. <laughs> now, now, what's interesting is I cannot get to be as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. I can't do it. I don't care how hard I tried, how hard you tried to help me. I cannot be as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. It's not, not possible. You cannot make the average great. You can make the average better. That may be a very productive, very noble thing to do. But you cannot make the average great. However, you can make the great average. And egalitarians, by definition, have to be in the business of making the great average. That's what they do. It's very easy to make Michael Jordan as good a basketball player as me. Just cut his legs off, right? <laughs> you say, well, we wouldn't do that. I don't know. We've been pretty tough on great people throughout Western civilization. You know, Poison Socrates in prison, Galileo, Byrne, Joan of Arc. Today we're more sophisticated. We do it with balls and chains. You know, 25% um, of the taxpayers pay 25% of the taxes, 50%. Uh, uh, 1% of the taxpayers pay 25% of the taxes, 5% of the taxpayers pay 50% of the taxes, and 50% of the taxpayers pay no taxes. Great way to run a democracy, right? We do it with lots of other rules and regulations, all theoretically to protect uh, consumers, most of which are designed to put balls and chains on very efficient businesses, right? Um, what people fail to realize is that great people make a disproportionate contribution to human well-being. Everybody in this room, your children, grandchildren, have a better life thanks to Thomas Edison. Put bombs and chains on great people and reduce the quality of life for all of us. Egalitarians like to claim the moral high ground, right? Because who can argue about everybody being equal? And whoever wins the moral high ground wins the fight. 
Morality always trumps economics. The interesting thing is they don't have the moral high ground. What motivates egalitarians is the most destructive of all human emotions, and watch it in yourself, it's called envy. It's hatred of the good for being the good. And by the way, egalitarianism is a lot worse than I just described. Because if you're going to make everybody equal, remember, whatever attribute you pick, half the people are below average by definition, right? In music, I am way below average. <laughs> I, I love music, but I am really a bad singer. I, I was raised in the Baptist church. Now, you know, the preachers in the Baptist church want you to sing except me. I was the only guy. Said, Don't let this guy sing. The only way to make everybody equal to me in singing is to make people sing really badly. Egalitarianism, if you think about it, now egalitarians wouldn't argue to that extreme, but if you want to understand an idea, you've got to take it to where it philosophically goes. That's where it philosophically goes. But I will tell you this, this is absolutely certain for the Obama administration and, and the progressives. They would far rather us all be poor and equal. No, and they would rather the United States be relatively equal even if we have to be poor. And that is a natural consequence of their concept of justice. And of course, what happens in that kind of environment, somebody's got to decide which group wins, right? And that's when the power lusters show up. They always rise to the top of the pyramid. And always in the name of the common good, they run over individual rights. And if, to the extreme, they start wars and kill hundreds of millions of people. But it's based on this philosophical idea of doing the common good, which is about making everybody equal even though that's not natural in nature. The other side of the argument, I think, is, comes from the, what's called the classical liberals and the libertarians. We are the modern-day defenders, in my view, of the principles that made America great, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, each individual's unequivocal moral right to their own life, each individual's moral right uh, to the pursuit of their personal happiness, each individual's moral right to the product of their labor. If you produce a lot, you get a lot, including the right to give it away to whoever you want to for whatever reason you want to. If you think about that set of ideals, it demands personal responsibility because there is no free lunch. As libertarians, we're primarily defenders of liberty. And most people are defenders of liberty. We just think liberty is a lot more important than some people realize. We think it's not just nice. It's essential for human well-being, human physical well-being and human spiritual well-being. Physical well-being in this sense, in order to be productive, an individual must be able to think for themselves. They must be able to draw their own conclusion from their own analysis of the facts. If somebody forces you to act like 2 plus 2 is 5, you literally cannot think. And lots of government rules and regulations force people to act like 2 plus 2 is 5. All human progress, by definition, is based on creativity and innovation. Because unless somebody does something better, which will be different, there can be no progress. Innovation, creativity, is only possible to an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, cannot contribute to human progress. Um, entrepreneurs, therefore, are essential for human well-being. We've got a lot of entrepreneurs in this room. Entrepreneurs take the ideas of scientists and engineers and turn them into reality. Without entrepreneurship, there's literally no progress. And what are, what are entrepreneurs? They're mostly experimenters. <laughs> they have ideas, they pursue those ideas, they make mistakes, they learn from those ideas, they, they keep experimenting. For every Google, there's a thousand failed Googles. For every Walmart, there's a thousand failed Walmarts. And to do that kind of experimentation, you have to be able to pursue your truth. 
You have to pursue your ideas, and they won't necessarily be the commonly accepted ideas. Um, so freedom is essential for people to be entrepreneurs, to innovate, and create, and contribute to human progress. We published a book last year called um, Poverty and Progress that looked at human well-being as long as we can and analyze that. And if you look from the, t the evolution of Homo sapiens 250,000 years ago into the late 1700s, life expectancy on the planet was basically the same. We had a little bit better quality of life, but people lived about the same. And then in the late 1700s, something happened. There was an invention. It was a transformational invention that improved life expectancy, first in Western civilization and now in the rest of the world. It was an invention that was more important than the wheel. It was more important than the fire. It was the invention of the rule of law, of individual rights, of free markets, of capitalism. Capitalism was invented in the late 1700s, and human progress has improved radically since then because free people are far more productive uh, than anybody that's regulated and controlled from above. So physical well-being depends on freedom, on liberty. But so does spiritual well-being. In the context of the pursuit of happiness, pursuit of happiness in the Aristotelian sense, I don't mean having a good time on Friday night, although it's good to have a good time on Friday night, but in the life well lived sense, blood, sweat, and tears happiness. When you're 80 years old, you look back and say, man, that was hard and I'm glad I did it. That kind of happiness, that kind of happiness has to be earned. You cannot be entitled to be happy, right? Something I say to students when I talk to students, if you don't assume personal responsibility for yourself, you're giving up the opportunity to earn happiness because you have to earn happiness. To earn happiness, you have to have goals. You have to pursue those goals consistent with your values, your beliefs as a free person. Nobody can make you be happy, and people can, however, keep you from being happy by denying your freedom. Being free doesn't guarantee you'll be happy, but if you're not free, guarantees you will not be happy. So in the context of the pursuit of happiness, human flourishing depends also on liberty. And what about the pursuit of happiness? The transformational idea in the Declaration of Independence is the pursuit of happiness. Liberty is very important, as I just described, but liberty is actually an old idea. The new idea that Jefferson expressed was that each one of us had the moral right to the pursuit of our personal happiness. Before the Jeffersonians, before the Enlightenment, everybody was goal existed for the good of the king, good of the state, good of the church. Nobody existed for their own good. Jefferson said that each of us has the moral right to pursuit of our personal happiness. And that is the idea that created the most successful and the most benevolent society in history. Now, it's interesting to think about the pursuit of happiness because that's pretty much a, a selfish idea, isn't it, right? You're going to pursue your personal happiness since selfish is supposed to be bad. Um, let's think about a second, the false alternatives we get. And the false alternatives are to take advantage of other people or self-sacrifice. Here's the irony. A lot of people think of being selfish as taking advantage of other people. If you take advantage of other people, you're not going to be trusted, right? And, and you can do a lot of damage to your subconscious doing that anyway. Taking advantage of other people is not in your self-interest. It's self-destructive. How about self-sacrifice? That's the moral code we hear in our society. I want you to ask this question. Now, ask it for yourself, but particularly ask it how you feel about your children or if you have grandchildren. How would you want your grandchildren to answer this question? I think it's a profoundly important question. Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Of course you do. Why would you believe anything different than that? 
Of course you have a right to your life. And by the way, this is just like altruism. If I don't have a right to my life, there are only eyes in this room, right? And if no eye has a right to their own life, then nobody has a right to their own life, and we have to act from this collective common good from these wise people because we don't have a right to our own life. So not being willing to defend the right to your own life, you're not willing to defend in a certain philosophical sense anybody's right to their own life. So you shouldn't take advantage of other people, but self-sacrifice doesn't make any sense either. What we really are is traders. We trade value for value. We get better together. I ran a bank for a long period of time, and our goal was to help our clients be economically successful, and we expect to make a profit doing it. Life is figuring out how to get better together. It's about creating win-win relationships, and that's what underlies free and prosperous societies. But those relationships have to be voluntary. They can't be forced. Somebody can put a gun to your head and create a win-win relationship, and that's why government has to be limited in that pursuit of happiness sense. I want to share with you one other thought about the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> in order to really earn happiness, you have to have a high level of true self-esteem, not fake self-esteem. Um, and when I see people fail at high levels in organizations, it's almost never because they aren't smart enough or they haven't, haven't been well educated enough. It's usually because they have some subconscious low self-esteem issue that results in self-destructive behavior. And unfortunately, you see that fairly often. So self-esteem is the foundation for success, but it's also the foundation for happiness. Happiness is the end of the game, right? Sometimes business people get confused. They think money's the end of the game. Money's a good thing. I'm pro-money. <laughs> However, money's not an end. It can be a means to an end. It's not the end. Happiness is the end, and to be happy, you have to have a real high level of earned self-esteem. A couple of thoughts about self-esteem. Self-esteem is fundamentally self-confidence in your ability to live and be successful given the facts of reality. So you earn self-esteem by how you live your life. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You cannot give anybody self-esteem. You cannot give your children self-esteem. Self-esteem has to be earned. Live your life with integrity and raise your self-esteem. That's why integrity is so important. To have a high level of self-esteem, you must believe you have the moral right to be happy. That discussion we just went through, if you don't believe you have the right to be happy, you can't have a high level of self-esteem. And finally, self-esteem in the real world primarily comes from productive work. Um, part of our nature is we have to produce as survive. And I use productive work in the broadest context. Raising children is very important, very productive work. Whatever you define your work to be, it will be the single biggest driver of your self-esteem because you spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. And that is what makes work so important. Something I said many times to the employees of BB&T when I was running BB&T. You know, it's very important to BB&T that you do your job well, uh, but it's far, far more important to you. You might fool me about how well you do your job. You might fool your boss about how well you do your job, but you'll never fool you. If you don't do your work the best you can do it, given your capabilities, your abilities, you can't do the impossible. If you don't do the worst, your work the best you can possibly do it, you will lower your self-esteem. Now here's the good news, the flip's also true. Do your work the best you can do it, given your capabilities, given, given your knowledge, and you will raise your self-esteem, which is more important than whether you get a promotion or get more money, because it's about your character. And there's actually a big social implication of that. Take a uh, construction worker, bricklayer, has a really tough, hard life. My granddad had that kind of life, tough, hard, grinding life. He has a tough, hard, grinding life, but he and his wife successfully raised their children. 
Maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a publicly traded company. Maybe not. Um, he has a tough life, but he gets something very precious from his work. He gets to be proud of himself. He gets self-esteem. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He may have more money, but he loses a part of his soul. He loses part of his pride. He loses a part of his self-esteem. You know, the current administration, and a number of people in Washington, but particularly the current administration, talk a lot about security. It's a fake kind of a security because they want us to be secure from reality, and you can't do that. But let's, let's give them the, the ground and say, okay, let's talk about security. Americans care about security, but this is not the land of security. People didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is the land of opportunity. The opportunity to be great, the opportunity to fail and try again, but most importantly, the opportunity that bricklayer to live life on his own terms, to pursue his personal happiness based on his beliefs and his values, to pursue his personal happiness as a free and independent person. And that's why people came to America, and that's what made America great, and that is the American sense of life, which is unique and special and something that we have to defend. Thank you very much. Okay, we got time for some questions, and I'll be glad to answer questions about anything that anybody wants to ask. Here's a brave soul, yes, sir. You talked about claiming the moral high ground. How do you put it in a 30-second soundbite uh, <laughs> as a libertarian? I, I don't know. The question was, how do you claim the moral high ground in a 30-second soundbite? And the answer is, you, I don't believe you can. And, and one of our challenges is that libertarianism and classical liberals, we actually are, we're idea people and we actually have complex ideas. And, and that is one of the challenges we have because our ideas are, they have to be right. <laughs> but being, if being right would have won the fight, we'd have won it a long time. Well, the founding fathers would have won it. What, what happened? And, and we do have a challenge. Now, you, the answer to the challenge, you're going to you probably find this is an odd question. It's not that we can do 30-second sound bites. I don't think we can. I, 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 we can maybe do better on a 30-second sound bites, but, but what we've really got to do is try to encourage an environment where people are critical thinkers. I think the single biggest disaster in America has been public schools who are not teaching students to think critically. If you want to know why the middle class is going down in America, because they don't know how to think. And that is our fundamental problem. Those of us that are advancing complex ideas that happen to be right, <laughs> it's hard for people to understand them. So it's not the propaganda in public schools that I worry about. It's the fact that students, many students, are not learning to think critically. Now, I believe the solution to that is a privatization of education. I think it's the most important single long-term issue in America, whether it's vouchers or tax credits or I'm for for-profit privatized unregulated schools. Because I think we've got a real struggle that so much of the population cannot think critically. And this movement towards emotionalism, and I understand we, we've got to figure out how to buy time, but it's a very dangerous movement because that's not, our ideas are not based, they, they create emotions, but they're, they're emotions that require some understanding. They're not simplistic kind of emotional reactions, which happens to people when they can't think critically, right? They start relying on their emotions because they can't figure out things. And that's actually not healthy, and I'm not sure how much we want to reinforce that. Not that emotions are important, passion's important, but this kind of emotionalism where people can't think is not, is not healthy. So I don't have a 30-second answer, although I think 
we need to fool with that. But I do have a long-term answer, and it's a privatization of education. Similarly, uh, kind of question, but in a, in a broader sense, you know, you have to have the message, but then you also need the microphone. You, you need, it needs to reach people in a way that's understood by the people. And I love the Cato organization, been a longtime sponsor, and will continue to be a longtime sponsor. But I feel like people who think like we do, we're not winning. The mainstream media, you know, our current elected officials, the, the, the people are just barraged constantly with ideas that are the opposite of what we believe, as you so well have explained over the last half hour. How do we, I, I'm depressed. <laughs> how, do we, how do we win against this massive mainstream? Is, do you see an, a way, an option, a vehicle? A yeah, I do, but I, I, I share your Depression some days. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to get discouraged because we got these massive um, hills we're trying to climb. David uh, Bo's going to talk about a little bit of this. I am actually encouraged on a lot of fronts. It's, it, ironically, libertarianism is rising in terms of being treated seriously in the, in the discussion for the first time in a long time. Uh, and you're seeing that partly because the, uh, both the Republicans and Democrats have become so political and it's probably stepping on some people's toes, both of them hold inconsistent positions. You know, the, 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 the Democrats want to take all your money, but you get, you know, you can have social freedom. The, the Republicans want to let you keep your money, more or less, but they, they, don't, they don't want you to be free socially. Those are inconsistent positions. They're not logically, they don't make any sense. So they're, in a way, those positions are very vulnerable, and that, that gives us an opportunity because of the logical consistency of our arguments. So you have to at least take the whole argument on. So libertarianism is clearly rising. We see it radically improving on college campuses. And what's happening on college campuses, still they're dominated by liberal students, <clears throat> but the conservatives are in decline and the libertarians are in a pretty rapid rise, primarily over social issues, where young people are much more aligned with libertarians on the social side of the issue. So libertarian is in a rise, and we're still a minority. David did some research a couple of years ago that suggested 20% of the population, or more or less, <clears throat> would be libertarian, not that they would say I'm a libertarian or vote for a libertarian party, but if you ask them about their political beliefs. And that's a significant improvement over time. So it's not hopeless. <laughs> Are we outnumbered? Yeah. <laughs> Does the press run by the left? Yeah. Or is it to some degree, in a few cases, by the right? So we, we, you know, we have filtered. Um, Cato's, interestingly, because we do take positions that align sometimes with the right and sometimes with the left, depending on the issue, uh, we do get a lot of press coverage. We have about 50 media hits a day, which is a lot for an organization our size, given our, our scale. That's really a lot. Uh, and, and we get in places like the New York Times where a lot of conservatives can't get in the Times because we align with the social issues that gives us some credibility and that we're taken more seriously. Um, so uh, we're out there in that fight. I, I'll have to say that uh, just on an economic perspective, I think it's very important to set these ideas out here to be really philosophically engaged in this strike and attack uh, the, the progressive ideas. And I think we have to have policy solutions, but I suspect we're going to keep moving in the wrong direction until we have some kind of crisis. And then the opportunity will exist to get worse or better. <laughs> and one of the things we're trying to do is set up the ideas. You know, in England went, you know, Margaret Thatcher had radical change in England. Not enough, but radical change. And I think that may happen in the United This time we had a crisis and we went the wrong way. 
Next time we have a crisis, and I think it's about 15 years down the road because of the demographics. I think the retirement of the baby boomers, and they all hit about 80 years old, and they need a lot of Medicare, we're going to have a financial crisis. I don't think we'll fix it before then. I'm maybe, and, but, you know, we're going to, hopefully we can set these ideas out there, and when that happens, uh, we'll be in a position to move in the right direction. And it's been done. Canada moved in the right direction. New Zealand moved in the right direction. They all moved around crises, unfortunately, as they don't typically move <laughs> without some kind of precipitating event. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. I wonder, I'm curious to know uh, at what point you made a decision to move away from your banking past and move into your current role with Cato and if that's something that you pursued uh, to fulfill that role or if Cato pursued you to fill that role? Fair question. Just, I'm not sure I said this at the beginning. I spent uh, 40 years at BB&T. I was a CEO for 20 years. I retired relatively early, uh, partly because I wanted to be sure that I had a successor in place who could do a good job, and fortunately he has done a good job. I think that's an obligation. I think a lot of people wait too long, and then they, after they leave the company, it goes down. Partly because trying to run a large publicly traded company, there was only so much I could say without really hurting my shareholders. And I probably was way over the line already. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't contain myself, so I kind of felt like I had to leave. I went to Wake Forest University and taught in the graduate business school. The last year I was there, I spoke uh, to 60 different student groups, 10,000 students, trying to defend free markets, talking about some of the ideas that you heard, heard today. Uh, I got recruited to Cato. Um, Cato uh, had a, an internal dispute that was more like a brother's fight. It wasn't a philosophical dispute. And I happened to be friends with both sides of the argument, and they brought me in to help settle the dispute. And fortunately, we had a little rocky ground. Fortunately, Cato's got great momentum. We're doing super now on every front. So that's encouraging. We've really got a really positive direction, which gives me a lot of hope. I think we're running out of question time. We need to let our next speaker go up for time purposes. I'll be around, plus you can ask questions to the next speaker. I think Michael Cannon's next. Michael, you up? Yeah. All right. Michael is our health care expert who's fighting Obamacare, and he's going to win this fight, I hope. <laughs> no pressure. Thanks, John. So I'm really glad to be here. Um, uh, for a lot of reasons. One of them is that I almost didn't make it because the plane uh, th this morning left and, well, we didn't even board until about half an hour after it was supposed to leave. And we sat on the tarmac for another half an hour. And then when we finally took off, I was looking at my iPhone and I saw a, a flight attendant race by, race down the, not down the aisle, it was really up because when you're still taking off, the plane is doing this. You're usually climbing up the aisle really fast. So I looked up from my iPhone. <laughs> and I saw a light flashing. It was a light I hadn't seen before, and that's when I heard the sound that goes along with that light, and it was red, the light, and the sound was scary, and the <laughs> flight attendants looked like they were confused and a little concerned, and they're ducking, they're putting their heads into the, 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 the four lavatory, and, and uh, we didn't know what was going on until one of them said that, uh, we overheard things like, well, we can't, if we can't see it, we can't use a fire extinguisher. And, and, and then uh, we heard them say the plane is going to turn around. And I thought, well, 
Jenna's going to be really mad at me now. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and then for a long time, the plane didn't turn around. And then finally, someone came over the intercom and said uh, that uh, it was a coffee pot. That had, there was no liquid in it. We were sitting there so long, and this set off the smoke detectors, and that's all it was. And we were going to keep going to Nashville. And so I asked the, the flight attendant who raced by me, is that the most excitement you've ever had in the air? And she said, no, I, I used to fly in military planes, and we've lost people. We've had people die in, in flight. And so for a lot of reasons, I'm really, really glad to be here. <laughs> um, so you've no doubt heard, John said I was going to talk about Obamacare. You've no doubt heard that Obamacare is here to stay, that it's not going to be repealed, that it's the law of the land. Well, let me pose a couple of questions to you. What if Obamacare, in fact, already went down in defeat, but the president is implementing it anyway? What if, to prevent this unpopular law from, uh, to protect this unpopular law from the people who don't like it, the voters, this president taxed and spent billions of dollars, not only without statutory authorization, but contrary to the unambiguously clear language of the statute that said he couldn't do that said he didn't have the authority to do that. Those are a couple of questions posed by four lawsuits brought by a couple of attorneys general, dozens of individual taxpayers and employers that primarily ask the following really boring question, really, really esoteric question. Does the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act authorize premium assistance tax credits in the 36 states that ref refuse to implement the law by establishing their own health insurance exchanges and instead have health insurance exchanges established by the federal government? I know it's a boring question. Stick with me. It gets more exciting soon. If you wanted to answer that question, where, how would you answer it? Well, you might go to the law. You might look at the eligibility rules for those tax credits that the, government, that the Congress put into the law. Someone reading those eligibility rules might think the answer is obviously no. They're not eligible for tax credits in those states in states that did not establish an exchange, in states that have a federal exchange. Why would you think that? Because among other limitations in those eligibility rules, those rules require tax credit recipients to enroll through a health, in health insurance through a health insurance exchange that was, quote, established by the state. And the eligibility rules actually repeat that a couple times. And you know, by cross-reference, it's like nine times they refer to that, that requirement. And if that wasn't clear enough, the statute defines the term state in that requirement to mean the 50 states in the District of Columbia. Federal government is not in that, so if it's established by one of the 50 states in the District of Columbia, you're good, you're eligible for a tax credit, but the federal government is not one of those things. A federal fallback exchange, as they call them, doesn't meet that criterion. And a congressional investigation found that the statute was clear enough to the IRS, at least through, the, through February of 2011, because their draft regulations implementing this part of the law repeated what the law said. It said that the tax credits will be available to someone who enrolls in a qualified health plan, quote, through an exchange established by the state. The, those regulations made no mention of tax credits in federal exchanges. Nevertheless, when Obamacare went live in January of this year, when the ex people started receiving coverage through the health insurance exchanges that uh, the law created in all 50 states, the IRS began issuing those tax credits in the 36 states, two-thirds of the states that had federal exchanges, in addition to the 16 that, or the 14 that had state-established exchanges. Now, since these tax credits, 
and I should use quotation fingers around that word, tax credits, since they take the form of the IRS cutting a check to the insurance company that provides you your Obamacare coverage, one consequence, one direct consequence of the IRS reinterpreting the law in this way is that the federal government is now spending billions of dollars, sending billions of dollars to private insurance companies that not have sent to them under its prior interpretation of, of the statute. Another direct consequence is that about, by my estimation, about 58 million individuals and employers in those 36 states, and Tennessee is one of them, Georgia is another one of them, 58 million individuals and employers in those states are now being subject to Obamacare's individual mandate and employer mandate, even though they would, by, by, by law, they are exempt from it because of the way those tax credits uh, uh, were, interact with the individual employer mandates, not available in your state, then you're not subject, then those 58 million people are not subject to those two mandates. They're not subject to penalties under those mandates, so expanding the availability of those subsidies beyond what the statute says expanded, expands the reach of really the two most unpopular parts of this law, the individual and employer mandates. Now, according to that same congressional investigation, is that me? Am I, am I doing this? Okay, I'll stop doing that. I'll keep my hands at my sides. <laughs> All right. According to that same congressional investigation, the IRS, uh, uh, the IRS changed its interpretation of the statute around the same time, and this is about uh, early March of 2011, that a mid-level IRS official learned that opponents of the law were going to challenge this feature of the law, were thinking about challenging this feature of the law as an unconstitutional commandeering of the states. Because they did this in the other part of the law. They've done this in, through the Medi- that expanded the Medicaid program. They've done this through the Medicaid f- program for decades now. Congress says to states, if you enact a compliant Medicaid program and operate a compliant Medicaid program, you get all sorts of money from the federal government. And you'll recall that that was the one part of the, uh, the, the Obamacare challenge that made it all the way to the Supreme Court, where there is a, a, a clear majority, uh, where, where the challenge is clearly won. The, the, the Supreme Court said that, yes, that was an unconstitutional commandeering of the states threatened to take away all their existing Medicaid funds. And I should point out that we have really one of the architects of the Supreme Court's uh, uh, reasoning in that case here with us, is Jim Bloomstein of Vanderbilt University uh, School of Law. Uh, he wrote an amicus brief that they largely borrowed from in, in, in that ruling. And actually, he, you were also at the event that was reported on uh, that, uh, that, that came to the attention of the IRS employee who re- then said, hey, they're thinking about challenging this part of the law, and ran that up the flagpole to the political appointees of the Treasury Department and the White House, and what did they do? They decided to change their interpretation of the law. They de- uh, the IRS, when it, made, uh, when it made that reinterpretation, didn't cite any authority for its decision in the statute. There isn't any, so they couldn't. Uh, it didn't, they didn't, uh, not when they announced their reinterpretation of the statute in August 2011 or when they finalized it with a, with a uh, final rule issued in May of 2012. It wasn't until five months later, in response to inquiries from members of Congress who said, hey, you don't have the authority to do this, that they finally conjured up some very thin and meritless uh, rationale based on uh, a provision of the statute. 
Now, since then, the government's rationale for its reinterpretation has evolved, but even today, that rationale weaves between insisting that the statute plainly does, <laughs> plainly does, authorize these subsidies in those 36 states. They say, well, it's a series of nested provisions that you have to, that you can only see when you look at the entirety of the statute instead of myopically focusing on the eligibility rules that Congress put in the statute. Uh, it weaves between that and insisting that the eligibility rules can't possibly mean what they plainly say. Now, the IRS's legal defenses here are both learned and completely wrong. Their interpretation of the statute finds, uh, now there are well-established legal doctrines that permit executive branch agencies to depart from clear statutory language in certain circumstances, but those doctrines don't rescue the IRS here. The statute does not offer them any aid or comfort. The legislative history does not offer them any aid or comfort. Um, there, in the three years that I've been talking about this issue, They've not managed to come up with one statement from, and never mind anything with the statute, one statement from a member of Congress or, or a committee report that says, yeah, we want this bill to offer these subsidies in states that don't cooperate. Nor does any uh, part of the statute betray any ambiguity, uh, despite the government's best efforts to manufacture it. And as the agency's long delay in even trying to identify legal authority suggests, its arguments are just post hoc rationalizations for its decision to implement the policy it wanted instead of the law that Congress enacted. And as a result, as I said, they're spending, ten, they're spending billions of dollars, taxing, borrowing, and spending billions of dollars without congressional authorization. Now, the IRS didn't, probably didn't anticipate that they were going to wind up in court over this. And the reason is that when, you, when uh, government officials spend money without congressional authorization, Taxpayers can't file a lawsuit to stop them because the injury to any particular taxpayer is so small. However, and here again, I have to tip my hat to Jim Bloomstein because he was the first one who noticed this from, from what I recall. It is only when one of your employees, if you're an employer with more than 50 employees, it's only when one of your employees receives one of these subsidies through an exchange that you're hit with penalties under Obamacare's employer mandate. So if under the law as written, if Tennessee doesn't establish an exchange, you're exempt because there can be no subsidies to trigger penalties against you. But then when the IRS comes and says, no, we're going to offer those subsidies in Tennessee, well, then as a Tennessee employer, all of a sudden you're subject to those penalties from which you're statutorily exempt because the IRS rewrote the statute. And uh, as a result, and there's, there's a, a similar effect uh, that takes place between the uh, the, those subsidies and the individual mandate. A lot of people in Tennessee are being subject to that uh, who should be, who by law are exempt. And so individuals, uh, employers, and even state officials from among those 36 federal exchange states have filed four lawsuits. Uh, the one you might have heard about is called Halbig v. Burwell, but there's also Pruitt uh, v. Burwell, King v. Burwell, Indiana v. IRS, that challenge the uh, IRS's reinterpretation of the law. They argue that the IRS overstepped its authority when it began issuing credits to now 5 million people in those 36 states, those subsidies uh, on behalf of those 5 million people uh, in those 36 states, and subjecting uh, the, the plaintiffs, subsidies which subject the plaintiffs to illegal penalties. Now, these lawsuits were once dismissed with such colorful adjectives as screwy, nutty, and stupid. 
So over time, and I think Jim knows where I'm going with this is why he's laughing, is over time, uh, those, uh, the plaintiff's arguments have been validated in and out of court in victory and even in defeat. The plaintiffs have prevailed at the district court level in Pruitt. They prevailed at the appellate level in Halbig. Now, both of those, the Obama administration is appealing both of those. But shortly after the Halbig ruling issued, multiple recordings surfaced from, uh, multiple recordings from 2012 surfaced from one of, uh, of one of Obamacare's architects, not a member of Congress, but to someone who had more influence on this than uh, anyone else outside of Congress, and probably most people in Congress, a health economist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology named Jonathan Gruber, who's been called an architect of Obamacare. He was uh, on video in 2012 uh, articulating perfectly the plaintiff's interpretation of the statute. He said, quote, if you're a state and you don't set up an exchange, that means your citizens don't get their tax credits. What makes it so funny, it, those, those colorful adjectives before, is screwy, nutty, and stupid is what the same guy, Jonathan Gruber, was saying about these cases. Uh, he isn't saying it anymore now that people have dug up these videos of him affirming the plaintiff's case. In fact, uh, he was cited as an expert in every brief that the federal government filed in every one of these cases until those videos came out, and now you can't find him anywhere. Some people are playing this, where, is Jonathan, where in the world is Jonathan Gruber game? Because uh, I think he's in some undisclosed location in, in Boston. Uh, even in defeat, the plaintiff's case has been, uh, has been validated to an extent. The one appellate court that has ruled against the plaintiffs is the Fourth Circuit. It found in King v. Burwell that uh, it ruled for the government, but it also found, quote, there can be no question that there's a certain sense to the plaintiff's position because, quote, a literal reading of the statute undoubtedly accords more closely with their position. And even though they ruled for the government, they said the government's case is, quote, only slightly stronger. And that is the most favorable treatment that the government has received from any of the three standing opinions. Uh, the other two, uh, as I mentioned before, went for the plaintiffs. Those were Halbig and Pruitt, and those rulings showed one by one how the government's arguments, including its claims of ambiguity, that the statute is ambiguous here, just have no merit at all. They can't be reconciled with the statute. Now, where the stake's not so incredibly high, the Halbig and the Pruitt rulings for the plaintiffs would be uncontroversial. I mean, this is what the statute says. It's clear. It's obvious. Why are we even having this conversation? But uh, the vigor of the government's legal defense has been proportionate to the stakes uh, involved here. A final, you have to understand what a final ruling for the plaintiffs would, uh, in these cases would mean. It, uh, it could have as large an impact on Obamacare as any constitutional challenge because it would mean, first, that states, that the courts will will have ruled that states have always had the power to block both the individual mandate and the subsidies that Obamacare offers in exchanges to hide from people the cost of their very expensive mandatory coverage. That's what the subsidies do. They don't reduce costs. They just shift them from the premium payer to the taxpayer. That's number one. Number two, uh, it would mean that the courts have ruled that two-thirds of the states have already blocked those provisions of Obamacare. And three, it would mean that the federal courts will have ruled with finality that the Obama administration taxed and spent billions of dollars, not only without statutory authorization, but contrary to the unambiguously clear language of Obamacare, of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Now, that, that kind of a ruling would simultaneously uphold Obamacare because they're not challenging Obamacare here. The Obama administration, the, say what you want about the plaintiffs and how much they hate Obamacare, and, and, a lot, and they do. 
but they have more respect for it than the Obama administration does because the Obama administration is rewriting it on the fly. That such a ruling would uphold Obamacare while exposing that the law is unstable and possibly unworkable without buy-in from the states. And this is not like when states refuse to, to expand Medicaid. It would have a much bigger impact on Obamacare than that. When states refuse to expand Medicaid, they just don't get federal grants, and they're, you know, they're, they're sending the, the ratio of money they send to Washington versus get back the, uh, what they get back increases, and that's about it. But when they don't establish an exchange, and their citizens don't get those subsidies, that means that their citizens face the full cost of their Obamacare coverage. And they're not going to like that one bit. Some people will see their premiums uh, or the amount that they have to pay for their health insurance increase sevenfold. In fact, Jonathan Gruber, our friend, found out that would be a typical effect or the average effect. And you're going to get a revolt. If that happens, you're going to get a revolt, uh, a backlash against Obamacare that's going to make the plan cancellations backlash, if you remember that from last year, look like a drop in the bucket. So, and it wouldn't be long after such a ruling for the plaintiffs that it would dawn on the American public that the president had, had engaged in taxation without representation, violating the clear language of federal law for the purpose of keeping his unpopular health care law uh, from being exposed as unworkable. Now, when that happens, repeal once again becomes a viable political issue. And so, too, do reforms that would actually make health care better more affordable and more secure, particularly for the people we care about the most. And I'm happy to talk about those, something other than these lawsuits, like those sorts of reforms or those lawsuits or anything you've got in mind. Thanks. They, 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 they could and they should. So two, the, there have been two rulings by appellate courts, and that's the step right before the Supreme Court. And uh, the, the, the plaintiffs won one and the government won one. And each losing side appealed. Now, the government, only, the government lost before the D.C. Circuit in Holbeck. They only appealed uh, to the full D.C. Circuit. They lost before a three-judge panel, and now they want the full D.C. Circuit to hear. Uh, and, and that uh, uh, to rehear that case, and there's a, there's a reason they want that instead of Supreme Court review. The reason is, you may recall that, was it last year that Harry Reid exercised the nuclear option and eliminated the filibuster for most judicial appointments? And that enabled them to get onto the D.C. Circuit three or four, three uh, judges whose nominations had been held up by Senate Republicans. I'm not a lawyer. I have to ask uh, Professor Bloomstein these questions. I just play one on TV now. Uh, and, and a lot of people thought that the reason that they got rid of the filibuster was these cases, that they were that big a deal. Probably lots of other reasons, too, but these cases are a big enough deal. And when asked about the Halbig ruling after it was issued, Harry Reid says, well, this basically validates our decision to get rid of the filibuster for judicial nominations, because if you look at the math of the D.C. Circuit, he said, we're going to win. Uh, and that's because there are now eight Democrats, on that panel, they're going to be, on Bonk panel, there are going to be eight Democratic appointees and five Republican appointees. And I'm not so cynical that I think that that is 100% determinative of the outcome, maybe 90, 95% determinative <laughs> of the outcome. Uh, so, so we expect to lose. The, pl the, the plaintiffs uh, 
who lost uh, in uh, the other appellate court appealed to the Supreme Court because they figured they would do better. And because if you think about it, you want to expedite these cases. If, if the legality of billions or tens of billions of federal expenditures and, and billions of dollars in taxes is in question, uh, that the, uh, uh, the, the government is imposing are in question, well then you want to have that resolved quickly because states have to decide whether they're going to establish exchanges. Employers have to uh, make their health benefits decisions and their hiring decisions based on whether they're subject to the employer mandate or not. Individuals have to make their health insurance decisions based on whether they're subject to the individual mandate or not. And, and on down the line. Never mind that once those billions of dollars go out the door, they're irretrievable and you can't get them back. So the Supreme Court, you had a circuit split there that uh, is, you know, may, increases the likelihood that the Supreme Court will take a case. I think you still have that circuit split, even though the, the, uh, uh, the DC circuit's going to rehear Halbing on Bonk. Uh, but this could end a lot of ways, some of which involve the Supreme Court, some of which don't involve the Supreme Court. Uh, we'll have to see if the Supreme Court wants to grant cert. I think they should. But I will say that uh, my, my co-author, I, I did a lot of the legal research underpinning these cases with a, another law, with a law professor named Jonathan Adler, and we like to say that the facts in the law are all on the plaintiff's side, which means their odds of success are a solid 20%. <laughs> because when you take on the government, you're always betting against the House. So we'll see how this goes. Yes, sir. Yes, I'll comment on this if you wish, because I think this is right up Cato's alley. If we look at the larger picture about how this came about, isn't this an absolutely perfect example or set of examples of a government trying to put together a massive program that is absolutely doomed to fail because it doesn't adhere to all of the aspects and all uh, that we think about that Cato represents? I think that it uh, it certainly <laughs> illustrates a lot of uh, a lot of points that libertarians have been making for a long time, including the about about the road to serfdom and how you give government more responsibility and its failures become excuses for giving it more power and more power. Uh, I, I think that there are two ways of uh, of interpreting doomed to fail. One of them is it's. Obamacare was obviously doomed to fail because government just doesn't make these decisions as well as individuals do interacting with each other on a voluntary basis through markets. You end up with more innovation, you end up uh, uh, meeting more people's needs at a lower cost, and you, you end up benefiting the most vulnerable more than you do if you give them a, all a, a government guarantee of access to health care through something like Medicaid or the Veterans Health Administration. There, but the... It, so... Obamacare is doomed to fail that way. It was not necessarily doomed to fail in the sense of being seen as a failure and repealed. Certainly, you've got the Netherlands, you've got Switzerland, you've got other countries where this exact same model has been put in place and hasn't been repealed. Obamacare was doomed to fail here on that, in that way, though, because it never had the political support in this country that, those, that that system has in Switzerland or the Netherlands. And so the only way they could get it passed is if the states were running it. And the only law that they could have, the only bill that they could have passed is one that not only asked the states to run it, but conditioned this essential, these essential pieces of the regulatory scheme on state cooperation. And two-thirds of the states rejected the role that the authors of this law envisioned for them. And so if the president had been following the law, it might have been repealed already. 
and at least would have been reopened for major revision. And I think that's the biggest scandal involved here, is that he's really influenced con votes in Congress and even congressional elections by spending this, this money illegally. Yes. Lindsay. Hi, Michael. Nice to see you. Uh, see so you. as we talked about last week in D.C., uh, Governor Haslam has not yet indicated whether or not he will expand Medicaid in our state. Can, if you had five minutes, three minutes with him to discuss the issue, what would your message to, <laughs> to our governor be about the issue and what we can do here in Tennessee um, for more positive reforms? Expanding Medicaid is uh, would be incredibly unfair to uh, to future generations, well, current generations of Tennesseans, but also future generations, because it seems like free money. It seems like the federal government is just throwing all sorts of free money at Tennessee to get them to expand Medicaid. But it's not free, obviously. And uh, while proponents of Medicaid expansion say, well, it's unfair to the state if we don't get our share of this Medicaid money, Really, the unfairness is if you take that money, because the way the federal government's going to get uh, come up with that money is they're not raising any new taxes for Tennessee Medicaid. They're just going to borrow it. They have the authorization, but only if Tennessee lets them, to borrow that money, to send that money to Tennessee for t Tennessee's Medicaid expansion. So what, what, is, what is government debt? Well, it's just a tax on future generations. So what the, you, I, I would tell the governor, what they're asking you to do is they're asking you to increase the federal deficit, impose a tax burden on future generations for the benefit of current generations. It, there's a lot of question about whether it actually benefits Medicaid enrollees themselves, but it'll certainly benefit the politicians and the special interests that, uh, that, that, that uh, get power and money as a result of that decision. And you'll be placing the burden of those benefits on future generations. So I think it's unfair. Uh, to do, first of all. Secondly, there are much better options for making uh, health insurance and, and, and medical care more affordable. Most of the problems all along those, uh, in those areas were created by the federal government. There's not a lot that states can do, but there are things that states can do. Tennessee, fortunately, already has a good Samaritan law on the books that allows, and has been an innovator in, in, in this area, that allows out-of-state licensed providers to come into the state and give away free medical care. In most states, that's illegal. If you're a physician who's ever tried, or, or any type of clinician who's ever tried to travel to another state and, and participate in a free clinic, uh, you know, weekend long, whatever the case, uh, it's probably pro it probably illegal for you to do so, or you're stopped from doing so. Tennessee has a, a Good Samaritan law on the books that allows uh, out-of-state licensed physicians and other clinicians to do that. They should expand that law. They should also enact medical malpractice reforms. I don't think you should do it like they did in Texas, where you put a cap on damages. I think you should let people choose their own caps. For some people, that Texas cap is going to be too high. For others, it's going to be too low. Let them write their own caps into the contracts with their doctors or their hospitals. Let them write in a loser pays rule. Let them write in mandatory binding arbitration, medical courts, whatever you want. And let them be governed by their choice of medical malpractice reforms in order to make that happen. And, and, and that will bring down the cost of medical care for the poor and I think also increase the quality of care. What's standing in the way of that is judges won't enforce those contracts. I can talk about why. What you need is for the legislature to pass a law that says judges enforce those contracts so that you can make health care more affordable for the poor. So there are better ways than Medicaid expansion. And I bet that was six minutes instead of five. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. I think David Bose is up next.
Thank you, Michael. Um, you know, the New Republic is the uh, biggest liberal magazine in uh, Washington, D.C., and last year they called Michael the single most relentless antagonist of Obamacare. Uh, they are really annoyed that he won't just give it up and let it go. Um, I'm glad to see you all here. I'm always glad to be back in Nashville. I grew up in western Kentucky, and I spent four years here at Vanderbilt in the 1970s, so it's always nice to get back and see how much Vanderbilt is growing, see how much Nashville is growing. Um, I discovered as I was walking over here from my hotel, oh, we're right next to Printer's Alley. I believe I remember Printer's Alley. I'm told it's not as much fun as it was in the 1970s. Uh, but, that's, but that's a sign of growth, I'm sure. Um, and I'm particularly delighted to see so many of you here uh, who are Cato supporters, those of you who are wearing the coveted red name tags. Um, those of you who have the blue name tags may want to put your hand over them. Um, but you can get, for the next event, the coveted red name tag by becoming a Cato sponsor and getting on our mailing list and supporting the work we do. And uh, my colleagues Harrison Moore and John Tamney here would be happy to tell you how to do that. So I want to talk about how I see the political and policy world right now. Um, and I think I probably am somewhat more optimistic than a lot of my colleagues and friends. Um, so let me talk about some of the things I'm seeing. One is libertarianism is busting out all over. Whether or not we're winning necessarily, at least it's an idea that's getting out there and being talked about. And everybody knows that wasn't always the case. Ron Paul's campaign in 2008 got a lot more people talking about libertarian ideas and particularly the combination of sound money and lower taxes and less federal spending and less involvement in overseas wars and the protection of civil liberties. And that combination of issues attracted a lot of attention, especially attracted a lot of young people to the Ron Paul campaign. And I think that was very significant. And then a few years after that, as in fact Ron Paul was running for president again, um, well, uh, no, before his second campaign, right after his 2008 campaign, which ended early in 2008 as, as he lost some primaries, right after that you started getting the financial crisis, the bailouts, the eventually the, the TARP, the stimulus program, Obamacare, and that seemed like a bad time for libertarians. We really felt shell-shocked at a lot of what was going on about that time. But it didn't last forever. It turns out when the government gets too big too fast, people react against it. And there was a journalist who wrote this wonderful article in 2010 um, as all of this stuff was going on and the political reaction was sitting, setting in, who wrote, the philosophical casualty of the Great Recession was supposed to be libertarianism, but Americans are increasingly opposed to activist government programs. The most significant social movement of 2009, the Tea Party protests, grew out of that opposition. The Obama administration brought with it ambitions of a resurgence of FDR and LBJ's active state liberalism, and with it, Obama has revived the enduring American challenge to the state. So that's great. Of course, it would be even better if this reaction to the growth of the state would, would set in before the state grabs more power instead of afterward. But at least it's good if there's a reaction 
to the government getting too big all of a sudden. You know, it's kind of like they tell you about the frog in warm water. Um, if you heat him up slowly, he'll die. If you turn the, turn the heat up too fast, he'll jump out. And that's kind of what happened uh, in the Tea Party protests. It, it happened fast and people got excited about it. And then you had what for libertarians was just a lollapalooza of scandals last year. Conveniently, all of these scandals came to light just after the re-election of President Obama. Who knows what would have happened uh, if they had happened in 2012 and 2013. But what did we have? What did we find out in 2013? The IRS was targeting Tea Party groups, and it later turned out groups that officially said their goal was to study the Constitution. The Government was scooping up the telephone records of AP reporters. They were monitoring the telephone and email records of a Fox News reporter. The Health and Human Services Secretary was soliciting donations from health care companies she regulates in order to promote Obamacare. No potential for conflict there. And then, of course, we got all the revelations about the NSA spying, surveillance, phone calls, emails, which, among other things, had the effect of pushing all those other scandals out of the newspapers. So they didn't have to write about the IRS scandal or the, uh, the assault on First Amendment rights anymore because they got that. And as I wrote last year, now that the Obama administration's abuse of power has gotten our attention, can we broaden our focus from the relatively minor IRS scandal and so on to take in health care mandates, recess appointments, campus speech codes, the anti-constitutional independent payment advisory board, similar extra legislative bodies in Dodd-Frank, the expropriation of Chrysler creditors, and the launching of illegal wars. Well, we're still having trouble getting the media to get interested in all of those. One of the problems is so many of them are legal. After all, if Congress passes it, must be legal. But all in all, it's still been a pretty exciting year to be a libertarian. But to some extent, all of that is politics, and political attitudes can change. And the Cato Institute in particular is not about politics. It's about changing and challenging fundamental ideas. And so what's important to us, and, and I think to the country, is to develop and promote the principles of liberty and limited government. And that's up to us because, with all due respect to elected officials here, we can't count on elected officials to do that. Um, we need people outside the political system to do that. So the first thing that is important to do is to define what we stand for. And John Allison talked a lot about that a few minutes ago. One of the terms that I like in describing what we stand for is something Adam Smith said the simple and obvious system of natural liberty. Let people exercise their rights, engage in trade and commerce with other people. That's natural liberty. You respect everybody's rights, and then you make your own decisions. Another way to put it is that no person has the right to initiate the use of force against another person who has not himself used force. If we followed that rule, most of what the government does wouldn't be necessary, wouldn't be appropriate. This is not just utilitarianism. It's not just economics. It's part of what John was talking about when he said moral high ground. There's absolutely no question 
that capitalism has produced a revolution in wealth for the world. And there's no question that lower taxes and smaller government will produce faster economic growth, and that's an important thing. And if you're looking for a 30-second soundbite trying to get across the message, lower taxes, less regulation, lower spending will produce faster economic growth is a good message. It's not the most fundamental message. The most fundamental message should be about our liberty, our rights, the simple system of natural liberty. It's about freedom and the limited government that protects freedom. Many of you remember the uh, writer, syndicated columnist Robert Novak, who also became uh, more famous later in life as a frequent television guest on CNN and Crossfire and so on. Um, he died a few years ago, and not too long before he died, I had the privilege of being at a luncheon for him um, where he talked about his new memoir. And he'd had a long career, and he was quite a writer, and the memoir was about this thick, and he told us it was that thick because the publisher made him cut half of it out. So. <laughs> I hope the manuscript's on file somewhere for scholars to look at. But one of the things he said was, when I am invited to give a commencement speech, which isn't nearly as often as liberal television journalists like Chris Matthews or Charlie Rose or uh, Andrea uh, Mitchell, but I do occasionally get invited to give a, a commencement speech, and when I do, I tell the students, always love your country but never trust your government. That doesn't mean you're an enemy of your government, and certainly not of your country. It does mean don't trust people with power. People with power should always be watched. I come from Kentucky. Some of you remember reading in school about the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions that said free government is based in suspicion and distrust of men with power. And that's the message Novak was getting across. And it's a lesson we have to continually relearn. And I know that sometimes donors to Cato or people we're trying to persuade to be donors to Cato want to ask us, is, is what think tanks do important? Politics, they say, that's where the action is. That's where you get things done. And I know there are people who share our values who give a lot more money to politics than they do to think tanks and other philosophical, ideological uh, activities. And I understand that. Politics has its place. But I thought my friend Joe Lehman of the Mackinac Center in Michigan had a good response to this a few years ago when he wrote, when lawmakers change public policy to favor liberty, they are only taking the final step in a long march. Watching what lawmakers accomplish in the legislature is like watching a football game through a hole in the fence that lets you only see the goal line. You're missing all the action that moved the ball down the field to where it could be moved across the goal line. And the guys who carry the ball across the goal line get the photos, they get the cheerleaders, they get the attention, but it's all the people who help them get there um, that are also important. And up the field and further away from the goal line glory is where ideas begin their march toward becoming public policy, and those ideas are developed and communicated by think tanks. Not exclusively, there are professors in universities doing that. There are groups that take the ideas of think tanks and turn them into action plans and talking points and so on. But think tanks are a crucial part of the transmission of ideas from pure theory 
to something that could be applied to public policy. And so in that way, I believe the Cato Institute and groups like us are renewing the culture of liberty that runs deep in America. And I know it's very easy to get depressed about the nature of the American culture. It absolutely is true that if you look at Hollywood and the major media and the universities, boy, there's a, a culture that is often hostile to individual rights and individual achievement and limited government, and that can be very frustrating. Nevertheless, if you look at the history of the world and the rest of the world, the American culture of liberty still looks pretty good and it does constrain to a great extent what the government does. There are two very distinguished scholars who don't much like freedom. One of them is Cass Sunstein, who recently worked for the Obama administration for about four years, and another scholar also from an Ivy League university. And they wrote a book a few years ago that complained that libertarian ideas are, quote, astonishingly widespread in American culture. They were very offended by this. They just wrote a whole book explaining why taxes are a good thing and we should be happy to pay more of them. And yet, arguments against this are astonishingly widespread in American culture. I guess if you don't get out of Cambridge very often. That comes as a revelation to you. But they're right, and that American heritage of liberty is still there, and it needs a voice. And that is part of what the Cato Institute tries to provide, is the voice for people who want liberty and limited government. As John said, uh, my colleague David Kirby and I have done some studies looking at public opinion polls and trying to figure out how many people generally share the libertarian idea of thinking the government is doing too much, thinking the government is doing too much in both economic and personal issues, thinking that the government currently has too much power. So the, the main way we look at this is not to look at individual issues, but to look at this um, overall um, value sense. And what we find is, depending on the polls, 15, 20, 23 percent of people, we think, constitute libertarian leaning voters. That doesn't mean they vote for the Libertarian Party. It doesn't mean they necessarily vote at all or for any particular candidate. But 20 to 40 million Americans don't fit in the conservative box or the liberal box, and they do broadly share the libertarian attitude of liberty and limited government. And we're not reaching enough of them. And so one of our big challenges is to find them and help them understand that this is the consistent view that you've been thinking of that maybe in some cases you weren't sure made sense because you don't hear very many politicians or people on television describing this combination of views. So part of it is just to help these people identify themselves, help them find their, the people they share these ideas with and then push them to get more involved in public life. I don't necessarily say politics. There's all kinds of public life. There's being an opinion molder. There's writing letters to the editor of the newspaper. There's writing columns. Uh, there's being a donor. All those kinds of things. Um, and so we at Cato are investing more in research to have the best uh, arguments to back up these ideas and more in communications to find more people like that. And that really it's why we're here, why we're in Washington usually, why we're occasionally in places like Nashville uh, next month in Atlanta and so on to talk about these ideas.
More than 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson and the other signers of the Declaration of Independence laid out really the libertarian argument for liberty and committed themselves to that cause with these words. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And they weren't kidding. Twelve signers had their homes ransacked and burned by the British. Nine died from wounds or hardships during the war. None, however, lost their sacred honor. We don't have to risk our lives, hopefully not even our homes, in order to fight for liberty and government today. But we do have to do what we can because we know that freedom isn't free. It has to be defended. It has to be won in every generation. In the famous Federalist Number 10, Madison talked about why we limited government because he said enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. No kidding. That's why you limit the power of government because even if at one given moment you think I trust George Washington or I trust Ronald Reagan or even I trust Barack Obama, some people did. Enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. So you don't give even a George Washington the kind of power that could later be wielded by somebody else. And that's why we can't rely on politicians and political campaigns. That's why we need institutions that work to advance the ideas of liberty and limited government no matter who is in Congress or who is in the White House. And that's why you are a hero of the revolution because these institutions can't survive with your, without your help. There's a statue in Chicago, uh, right in the center of this great city of Chicago, um, of George Washington flanked on either side by two other men, Robert Morris and Haim Solomon. You may not know those names, but they were also essential to winning the American Revolution because they were two of the chief funders of the revolution. And that statue, I like to think, should be the emblem of the freedom movement, because without financial support, visionaries and leaders of institutions can't achieve much. So my colleagues and I thank all of you from the bottom of our hearts for being our partners in this effort. And we're going to ask you to keep doing it because there's never been a golden age of liberty. I think it's wrong to think that we've, we've slipped. There are so many ways in which we have made progress. Yes, we have a bigger entitlement state, but we have a lot more people who are allowed to participate in social and economic life than used to be the case. We have extended the general rule of law, human rights, economic activity, economic freedom to larger parts of the world than we used to. Um, we have brought more people into the general circle of liberty and limited government than ever before. There's never been a golden age of liberty and there never will be because there will always be people who just want to live their lives in peace and there will always be people who don't want to let them who want to seek power over other people. And that's why there will always be a conflict between liberty and power and why there will always be a need for a movement for freedom. That is up to us to do. And so that is why we are here. Thank you very much for being part of that.
And I guess we have a couple of minutes for questions. David, what do you think is the current state of the Libertarian Party? And is there any affiliation or relationship between Cato and the Libertarian Party? Well, no, we're strictly non-political. So we have, we have no political uh, connections. Um, I am interested in politics, partly in the same way I'm interested in college basketball. I find it fun to watch. Um, I like to see the rankings every week. Um, it does appear that Libertarian Party candidates this year in various races are polling better than they have in the past. Now, this is still in the 4 to 10 percent range, not any that I'm aware of in any significant race who are threatening to win. Uh, they are polling better, and that might be a sign, A, that more people hold libertarian views, and B, that a lot more people are just fed up with both parties. Because, you know, it's a big effort to go to the polls and then vote for a candidate you're pretty sure isn't going to win. So if, in fact, 6% of the people do that in high-profile races like governor or senator in a state, that's a pretty big vote of no confidence in the politicians. But I'll tell you one thing about the state of the Libertarian Party that I thought was interesting. A uh, couple of weeks ago, I sort of idly got interested in, hey, I wonder who the Libertarians are going to nominate for president next time. Um, and these days, of course, you've all got all the knowledge in the history of the world in your pocket right now. Um, so it's easy enough. I don't have to think, who can I call? I just go online, Google Libertarian Presidential Nomination 2016. You know what? I couldn't find anything about it because it was all overwhelmed with discussions of libertarian influences in the Republican Party race for 2016. Rand Paul and would there be other candidates and might libertarians vote for Rand Paul and if Rand Paul were to lose, who else might they be for? Completely overwhelmed any discussion of the Libertarian Party. So. If you're, a member of, if you're an activist in the Libertarian Party, you wouldn't be happy about that. But if you're a small-l Libertarian like me, you've got to think it's a good thing that, Canada, that uh, newspapers are talking about what the Libertarian influence in the presidential race might be. All right, I don't see any other questions right now. Do you want to come back up or should I say goodbye? All right. Um, it's great to be back here in Nashville. It's great to be uh, near Vanderbilt. Um, I'm going to go visit my uh, family in Kentucky tomorrow, so that's all part of Old Home Week for me. Thank you very much for being part of our effort for liberty and limited government and individual rights. I hope you'll stick with us, and I hope you'll see us being your voice in Washington, in the national debate, in the book world, in the newspapers, on television bringing these ideas to the American people. Thanks very much.